Hello and welcome to Biblical Breadcrumbs. And in this episode, we'll delve further into our introduction to the Bible, and now we'll actually get to introduce you to Jesus. Now, don't get too excited just yet. We're not really going to talk much about him. We're going to talk a little bit around who he is because the Bible has some buildup to do before he actually gets on the scene. It's like in a movie, you're shown different shots of anticipation of people, uh, of building up to a big reveal, and Jesus is that big reveal, right? That's what the entire Bible is about. And in like fashion... Luke starts out with a lot of buildup before he actually gets to the reveal. Now, again, this is meant for people who are either pretty familiar with the Bible and looking to maybe have some material to help introduce newcomers to the Bible, or this is meant for newcomers who don't really know anything but are curious about what the Bible is and what Christianity is, and we're getting into really what that's starting to mean as we go through today. What we talked about last time, I'll go ahead and say this, what we talked about last time was a summary of Luke chapters 1 and 2. We didn't really read it, we kind of talked around some ideas. Today we're going to look at Luke 3, we're going to read a portion of it and make some some basic points and ideas from that. Hopefully those are helpful to you as you start thinking about who this Jesus is, but I will say this, that oftentimes I combine these classes into one. And so we really look at Luke 1 through 3 with special emphasis on 3. Now, I think there's some important stuff in 1 and 2, and I wanted to cover that as kind of full background information, but I understand that it's not, you know, everybody's cup of tea, and sometimes we just want to start talking about Jesus, because that's much more exciting than the weird details of Jesus' birth. Luke 1 and 2 are important. And so I, I expanded that in greater detail last time, and, you know, some of it was, was pretty logically sound, and some of it was probably rambly, and, you know, that's just what you get sometimes. But Luke 3 is where it really solidifies and where we start to get to our pattern, which is, as a teacher, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you kind of what I do. I look at one passage, one section of the Bible— make some points on what's there, make some points on, on and like emphasize certain things that the text has said, and then leave it for you to think about. I can't tell you what to think, I can't tell you how to think, but I can tell you what's there, and I can leave it up to you to consider for yourself and make your own decision based on the things that it says. And so Luke 3, we get to Luke 3 today. This is the chapter Jesus and John allegedly have miraculous births from the first two chapters. And again, if you're going to read the Bible, you're going to need some, some, you're going to either need to believe that supernatural things exist, or if you're a skeptic, you need to have some suspension of disbelief then. Hopefully, as you read the Bible, the historical detail grounds you to the fact that these are real people, and these are real witnesses, and this is what the witnesses said that miraculous things happen, that the supernatural things do exist, and this is not just cultural ignorance, this is actual eyewitness testimony of what happened. Hopefully, you're at that viewpoint. Hopefully, you're able to see in that way, but if you're not, then for a moment, let's just say that Jesus and John allegedly have miraculous births. Well, here are the consequences of that. You have two very special people, Jesus and John. John is going to be named John the Baptist. Uh, Colloquially, that's kind of how we we talk about him. And Jesus is going to be given a whole lot of names. The first few of those ideas come from Luke chapter 3. And what I want you to see in this passage 
in Luke chapter 3, we're going to, again, this is not a comprehensive reading of the whole entire text. This is going to be a selected paragraph. I'm going to, you're, you're free to read it and then ask your own questions about it. And I can definitely answer, well, I won't say every question. I can answer most questions. Probably you're welcome to send those to me. Uh, email is is always available, or Instagram message, or, or whatever it might be, whatever is convenient. You can definitely send questions about other aspects of the passage that I might want to touch on. But what I'm going to do is look at a specific paragraph that's going to emphasize some important things about who Jesus is, or what he said, what he does, what he claims, and where his eyewitnesses are from. You know, those important things that I kind of ask you to look for, I'm going to ask about those things. And so Luke 3, our selected paragraph is going to be 15 through 22. Primarily, I'm also going to make reference to 23 through 20 or through 38, and I will even read that so you have an example of all of, uh, of who all this is talking about. Um, you have an example of how to pronounce the names, maybe. But primarily, we're going to key in on uh, Luke 3, 15, let's just say 15 through 38. The second half of the chapter really talks about who Jesus is. The first half of this chapter introduces John the Baptist and gives the book of Luke a historical context in verses 1 and 2. It talks about John the Baptist in verses 3 through 6, and it talks about John's message in verses 7 through 14. There are a bunch of different things here that we could break down if we wanted to, and you can make a sermon out of any of those sections, but I'm not going to. I'm going to show some restraint. I'm not allowed to do that here. No, what instead I'm going to do is say, John was a teacher who came in and said some incredible things, said some things that these people hadn't heard before, emphasized some concepts that these people hadn't really thought much on before, and they were impressed by him, and they start asking him questions, a question that we see pop up in Luke chapter 3 in verse 15. Start reading with me. Again, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version. Luke 3, verse 15. Now the people were waiting expectantly, And all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptized you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. That's the first paragraph, and we'll go ahead and point out some details in this, and then I'll go ahead and read the second paragraph, point out some details, and do the same for the third. In this first paragraph, what I want you to see here is that John witnesses to Jesus. What you'll see throughout these these three little sections we're doing today, 15 through 21, John witnesses to Jesus, and he calls Jesus essentially the judge. Verses 21 and 22, many people witness to Jesus, and many people know Jesus as the Son of God or God himself. And ultimately, in verses 23 through 38, what Luke is going to point out is that genealogy and history witness to Jesus, and they call Jesus a human. And so you have these three titles for who Jesus is, three claims, if you will, if you want to think about them. Jesus is the judge, he is God, and he is man. Jesus is is the judge of everything, 
Jesus is God himself, and Jesus is also a human being, and those points are very important. We'll get there when we get there. Firstly, you have to see the question that's being asked. The people are waiting expectantly. What are they expecting? They're asking if John is the Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah. So culturally, Messiah for the Jews, I think I've explained this uh, a couple episodes ago maybe, Messiah or Christ or the Anointed One, if you were to just use English, Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek, Anointed One is essentially the translation of both of those into our modern vernacular in English, everyone is waiting for the anointed one, for Christ, for God's special servant who's going to come and set everything right for God's people. And they're hearing John, and John is preaching some incredible things, and, and they're seeing something new. He's the greatest teacher that's been in a long time. Okay, is he the Christ? Is he Christ? Is he the one we're supposed to follow? Is he the one who's God's servant who's setting everything right? They think that John is going to be Christ, and so they're asking him this question, is that who you are? And John says, no, no, Christ is much bigger than me. What does he say? In verse 16 and 17, really, he emphasizes these things. I'm I'm doing a little bit, but Christ is going to do a whole lot more. So, for example, I baptize you with water, Congratulations. Like, that's good, right? That's essential. Baptism is, uh, by definition, to baptize something is to fully immerse it, to uh, have it, like, covered over by other stuff. Different people, if you were if you were dyeing clothes back in these days, you would baptize them in the dye to fully, you know, like, to fully dye them. Um, baptize is one of the English words we have today. It just means immersion, but instead of, you know, translating it to English, we instead adopted the word from its original language. And so whenever you hear baptism, uh, it, is, it is talking about a process of immersion, of, of total covering. It's something that the Jews would ritually do to cleanse themselves of impurities, but it's also something that John used in this um, in this context, back in verse 3, he goes about in the vicinity of the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Not just a ritual, the, the Jews would have a baptism for ritual cleanness and like a physical cleanness, right? They would take a bath, essentially. But John emphasizes a baptism that is for spiritual cleanness. Sure, it, it covered all of you. Sure, it washed you off externally. But really what it was for was symbology of an internal cleanness. John is proclaiming that kind of baptism. I'm baptizing you with water. That's great. That's physical. Like That's a sign that you're, that you're working towards God. But... He, the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, in verse 16. Now, is it more impressive to be baptized with water, to be completely covered in water? Um, I mean, we, we can all do that. We can go swimming, right? Uh, that's something that's easy, to cover yourself in water. Is it more impressive to do that or to cover yourself in the Holy Spirit? I don't even know what that looks like. Or to cover yourself in fire, right? Uh, okay, you don't survive being covered in fire. That, that's not something that works. How do you immerse yourself in fire? It, it's, fire is not an element that you can be immersed in. You can be covered in it, sort of, like, like it can be all over you, but you can't really, it just doesn't make sense to be immersed in it unless you're, I don't know, sitting in lava or something. You can be immersed in water by any human being, 
Who's going to immerse you in fire? And who's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit? Messiah is much bigger. Messiah is much more powerful than I am, right, than just a human being. He is, ultimately, he's the judge, and he's going to pass that on to you. Now, this concept of Holy Spirit and fire is often misunderstood. It's often misapplied, and the language is taken to uh, kind of imply, like, good and happy things for both of them. That doesn't really make sense based on what John says in verse 17, which is his winnowing shovel or winnowing fork is in his hand, and guess what he does? He clears his threshing floor, okay? There's... uh, I live in the Silicon Valley. I live in the Bay Area of California. That is not a farming community, but I do come from a place with farms, and I do come from a place with farmers originally, and, you know, I've seen some of this. I I have some experience having watched a little of this before. Essentially, when you're threshing wheat, when you're clearing out wheat, um, you have the wheat, the, the stalks that you pull, and then you separate the wheat from what is called the chaff. The chaff is stuff you don't want to eat. It's kind of filler. It's kind of nonsense. You don't want to eat that. You don't want to take that in. And so you're going to separate good grains of wheat from chaff and from what is worthless. Chaff is another term for stuff that just doesn't matter and that you don't want to be a part of. And so John uses this picture, and oftentimes in scriptures, this picture is used. Jesus himself will come back around and talk about this kind of picture of a separation of wheat, something that is good and healthy, from chaff, something that is dumb and worthless, okay? There's a separation there. And oftentimes this is used to talk about judgment, and so it is here. Jesus is going to separate the good wheat into the barn. He's going to take the good things, the Messiah, sorry, I'm spoiling it a little bit. Christ is going to separate the good things into the barn and take them up to God and have them in store for where they matter. And he's also going to take the bad things, the chaff, the worthless things, not even just like evil things, just stuff that doesn't matter and stuff that didn't do anything, and stuff that's worthless and empty, and he's going to put it in the furnace. That's, a, that's how Christ operates, Holy Spirit or fire. God often uses a picture of fire to represent his work with people. Fire, it can do two things. Fire can, well, fire works in a couple different ways. The same fire hardens clay but melts wax. The same fire can purify metal, or it can burn wood to the ground. And really, the difference is what that substance is made of. And really, the difference is what goes through the fire. You can bake wheat and use it for good. You can bake wheat. That's, you make it into bread, right? You make it into flour. You make it into bread, and that's something that's good and sustaining. You can't do that with chaff. Chaff just burns, chaff just dies. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be God's kept in store for good or something that is, that is worthless and ultimately cannot withstand the power of God and is, as such, removed? Jesus, sorry, Christ will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's a distinction that's made. And ultimately, that distinction is going to be made on Judgment Day, at the end of time when God comes back in all his glory. Ultimately, there's a distinction that's made between what's good and what's bad. But that's what Christ is coming to do, is to make a distinction between the good and the bad, 
the worthwhile and the worthless, those who listen and those who don't, and ultimately those who are gods and those who are not. You'll see that play out in the rest of the book. There's this claim that begins right here. Christ is coming, he is powerful, and above all, he's the judge of everyone. So along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people in verse 18. That is good news, right? We hear that and we say, oh, I don't want to be the chaff. That would be terrible news. Okay, but it's really good news if you're the wheat. It's really good news if you're on the right side of things. John came proclaiming a gospel to the people. Good news gospel, the gospel of Luke. We call it that. It's the good news according to Luke. And so... John has written, or John has proclaimed good news to the people. Ultimately, he gets put in prison because of of Herod's interference, and that's just a mess, but John has served his purpose. John's purpose was defined in verses 4 through 6. We didn't look at it specifically, but I'll mention it right now. John's purpose is to lay the groundwork for Christ to ultimately come in, and so what does he do? He says Christ is coming. He says Christ is coming in power. He says Christ is coming as your judge, and you need to be on his side. He's laid the work for Christ to come in and fulfill everything, and now we get to watch it happen. Now, in a live class, it would be like comments and questions, and, and is there any kind of, is there stuff I should clarify here? Is there stuff I should further detail? And we can spend whatever time focusing on that. As it is, you can't talk back, and so uh, I'm just going to keep rolling. As it is, let's move on to this next section in verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Well, that's pretty simple. Number two, the second thing I want you to see, it's not just John the Baptist witnessing to Jesus. John was a human. He was a great human. He taught some incredible things, and Jesus will call that out later on, and he will give proper accolades where where proper accolades are due. John was pretty cool, but he was just one man who's witnessing to who Jesus is. He's calling Jesus the judge. He's calling Jesus important, but ultimately he's just one person. Here is not the same thing. Here we have an instance in which God speaks from heaven, right? Again, the supernatural thing. I believe that the supernatural exists. If you don't, you're going to have to start changing. You're going to have to start thinking about that, right? Changing your mind, I would recommend, but at least start thinking about that. Because here you have many human beings who are all there, who are all getting baptized. This is while John was still baptizing before he got put in prison. He gets, chronologically, he gets put in prison later, but Luke catalogs it right before this, just for, like, you know, simplicity of reference. John is baptizing. Many, many people are hanging out by the Jordan. There are many crowds and multitudes of people. So many people are around. Jesus gets baptized, and so many people hear a voice speaking from heaven. Where do you think Luke got that? probably from whoever was there. I don't know how many people were there. I don't know how many people he witnessed or he personally interviewed, how many of the witnesses he personally talked to, but there were a lot of people there. It's not just one man, John, saying, oh, Jesus is cool. It's a lot of people saying there was a voice that spoke from heaven. I may not it's hard to say that the supernatural exists when you look around today and it doesn't seem like God is God is doing anything so active anymore. It doesn't seem like God is, you know, speaking from heaven anymore. I've never heard that. 
But so many people throughout history have witnessed to this one event, right? So many people in history said this is true, that Luke wrote it down because it's fact. Luke wrote it down because everybody is hearing it at the same time. Either they're all mass hallucinating a voice, which doesn't happen, a voice that says the same thing in the same way. Either they're all mass hallucinating that, that is impossible to happen, or it was true. And so I have to believe that it's true. I haven't heard God speak from heaven myself, but I do know that all these other humans said he did. Um, Do I really doubt all of them? Probably not. And so God speaks from heaven, it appears. And many people witness to who Jesus is. Many people witness to what the voice said, the voice coming down from heaven, saying, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. What does that mean? It means that God is speaking from heaven, and what is, what is the claim that's being made is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a human. He's not just a random guy. He's not just a normal human being who does stuff, right? He's not just a super impressive man. He is God, or he is related to God. He is from God. He is of God. How, however you want to say it, he is God. Inbuilt authority right here, as God speaks from heaven, as many humans witness to this, and they call Jesus God's Son. You can believe that, or you can disavow that. You can listen to that, or you cannot. That's up to you. That's not on me. That's on you. That's the question. Do you believe or not? It's hard to believe. It's hard to get in the mindset to believe, and yet so many people throughout history have said this. So many people at this one time witnessed to the event and so many people after it knew and, and gave their lives to this man. Why would they give it to this man? This man who ultimately dies, why would they give it to him? Because he's not just a man. And they all believed because they all heard and saw these things. What are the claims being made? Jesus is God's son. Okay. What are the things that Jesus is doing? Well, the Holy Spirit is coming down and talking to him. Okay. That's visual. That's auditory. That's evidence. For who Jesus is, again, evaluate those things as we go through. But the third thing, it's not just John witnessing to Jesus it's, and calling Jesus the judge. It's not just the many people witnessing to Jesus and calling him God, right? And ultimately God himself calling Jesus the Son of God. It's also the genealogy witnessing to Jesus and calling Jesus a human. And this is really important because it, it's not just that Jesus is God, it's that Jesus is a man. And so I will embark on this exercise starting in verse 23 in which I read through all of these names and hopefully I pronounce all of them correctly. I don't really know um, because I'm not a Jew from 2,000 years ago and I'm not a Greek from 2,000 years ago. I don't know Hebrew, I don't know Greek, I don't know these names, and so I will pronounce them as my regular American self in the 2024. Um, If I say them wrong, oh no. Who really cares, right? You can read the names as well as I can, uh, and so let's just go through them. But what this is going to serve to do, it's it's a boring list of names, right? But what does it serve to do? It serves to link Jesus to a few important people, and it serves to establish him as a human being, right? He's not just an ethereal God figure who came out of nowhere and is floating around on the earth for a bit before he leaves. He is an actual human being. He is God, 
and man. He, he is both of them together at once. How does that work? I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about it later, but I don't really know how it works. It's just what God says, and I believe all the rest of it, and so, you know, I have to believe that as well, even though I can't work out the numbers in my brain. That's all right. He's bigger than I am, and he can do math at a lot higher level than I can. This is Jesus's genealogy, a list of names very popular in the Jewish culture to kind of link you back to important people throughout the past, um, to fulfill the role of, for example, a priest in their worship. You had to link your line, your lineage back all the way to a specific guy named Aaron. Okay, how do you do that? By keeping extensive genealogical records. And so here's an example of those extensive records. Let's start reading in verse 23. I'm going to go through this pretty quick, and then we'll wrap up here. Verse 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. That's a nice indicator of how old he is. Again, some authenticity. And he was thought to be the son of Joseph, because, you know, from the story in, in chapters 1 and 2, he's not actually Joseph's uh, like biological son, but God made him that way, again, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Go back and read those chapters. He was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Matthias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Mattathias, again, son of Simeon, son of Joseph, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosam, son of Elmedon, son of Er, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Methat, son of Levi, again, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, again, son of Jonam, son of El Eliakim, son of Meleah, son of Mena, son of Matatha, Again, there's so many of those. Son of Nathan, son of David, that one's important, into verse 31. Son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Nashon, son of Amminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah. That's kind of important, into verse 33. Son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, that's really important, verse 34. Son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Sarag, son of Ru, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Kainan, son of... Arpaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, yeah, that one, son of Kainan, again, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. What did all that mean? Firstly, it means that I achieved an award for reading all of those names. Okay, but what did that really mean? What does it do? It shows you how meticulous these records are. If you were a Jew and you were wondering where Jesus came from, what do you do? You go back and search the genealogies. Yes, you will find him. They keep very meticulous genealogies throughout so that they know, because you have to be a Jew to be one of God's people, and therefore everything is mapped out very carefully, right? This is very important to them to keep their genealogies straight, to keep them in the proper tribes and keep the proper distinctions there. This is very important. And so, like, everything stems from this. This is incredibly important to them. They keep records of it. Firstly, it proves that Jesus is a human. He's not just a floating, ethereal being. He is a human. He is flesh and blood. He is a man, and we're going to see an example of that in the fourth chapter and next time. For secondly, it proves he's related to some very important people. 
right? He's connected to David in the end of verse 31. David was originally a shepherd back in the land of Israel. He was a shepherd who ends up being a king and being what God calls a man after God's own heart. He is not particularly good all the time. He makes, in fact, he makes some rather horrendous mistakes, but he always does his best to be God's, and God makes some strong promises to him, promising him eternal kingship and leadership over the people of Israel, and he uses David several times to talk about Messiah. Messiah has to be David's son, and so, you know, Jesus is David's son. He's his great, 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 however many great grandsons, of course, but Jesus is related to David, so he can be Messiah. Secondly, Jesus is connected to Judah. Judah is a picture of kingship. That's the end of verse 33. I think there were a couple people named Judah in the lineage. Yes, there was another one in verse 30. We're talking about the one in verse 33, the son of Jacob. Um, Judah is important. He is a picture of kingship in the Old Testament, and so there are Old Testament ties. Old Testament says Judah is the line of kings. That's where David came from, and ultimately Messiah is going to come from the line of kings. Jesus is from Judah, therefore he can be Messiah. Thirdly, it ties him to Abraham. Abraham is super important. Abraham in verse, I lost it, verse 34, middle of verse 34. Abraham, a lot of the times Jews would call themselves the children of Abraham. I think they probably still will do that. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not up to date on modern Judaism. Um, but they would call themselves children of Abraham. Abraham is a man of faith. He originated the, like, the first Jews. He had the first covenant with God. He is incredibly important. Jesus is connected with that covenant. As part of Abraham's covenant, God promised him a, an heir one day who would, who would benefit the entire world. That's Jesus. He's coming to fulfill those promises, and we can look at that at some other time. Abraham is a man of faith. That's very important. Jesus is coming from this lineage of this great man, and ultimately it hooks him back to Adam, to the beginning. Adam just means human. Um, it means it, it, he is the original. If you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the first human God created was Adam. In verse 38 here, we see him named. Adam is the son of God. He was originated from God. He is in the beginning. He came from the beginning. Jesus comes from the beginning. He comes from a line of faith. He comes from a line of kings, and ultimately he's going to come and fulfill all these promises. You see what's being claimed about him? He is a real person. He has a strong lineage, and he has great capability. Looking forward to the future, he's going to fulfill everything, and that's who Jesus is. As he comes on the scene, in the end of chapter 3, really into the beginning of chapter 4, this is who Jesus is. He is big, he is strong, he's going to be the judge. He is God, but he's also man. And that means he is, he's God, he's, he's perfect, and he has everything. But he's also man, which means he's going to be vulnerable. And that's where we're going to pick up. That's where we're going to have to pick up in chapter 4 as we start that next week when we talk about Jesus' temptation. Again, this will not be a comprehensive study. I'm going to look at the first 13 verses of chapter 4 and make a bunch of points on those because there's so much to be talked about there, and that is where we're going to next time. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you benefited. Send me any questions. God bless, and I'll see you next time.